Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as we continue to work through this marvelous, marvelous book, this gospel of Jesus Christ, the, all the details that Mark provides for us in unfolding this story of Christ and His journeys upon the earth and His teachings for us. I don't know how many of you have heard about the concept of a, of a five-tool baseball player. I'm probably the only baseball nerd in this room right now, uh, but there's this concept, they call it a five-tool baseball player. Traditionally, there's certain skill sets that are needed to excel at the sport of baseball. Uh, these skill sets are often broken down into five broad categories that they call the tools, the five tools. You got the speed tool, the fielding tool, arm strength, hitting for average, and hitting for power. Those are the five tools. Well, the game of baseball requires you to be really good at at least one of those tools if you're going to stick at the big league level. You don't have to be great at all of them, but if you can at least be good at one of them, you've got a fighting chance there. But if you're, only, if you're only good at one, you really have to be really, really good at that one tool in order to have sustained success. Because every year there are players that are traded, they're, they're sent around the league, and maybe they only have one or two tools, but... Maybe they're being traded to a team that's trying to make a push for the championship, and so they need, they've got a de deficiency in their team, they need somebody with these tools, and so they trade for that guy to try to round out their team and make them more balanced. But if you're a player that excels at multiple tools, you can really begin to increase your value exponentially. And then there's this language, a five-tool player. If you're a player, if you've got a, all five tools... You are the player that every team desires. You're the one that everybody wants. You're the envy of the league. When five-tool players are traded, the return is massive. When five-tool players sign new contracts, they invariably set new records for the most dollar amounts or years, etc. Well, that's for hitters. Pitchers are evaluated differently. They've got different tools and uh, in recent years, there's this baseball player who's both a hitter and a pitcher, and he's really been excelling. He's got like eight or nine tools. It's just, and he's going to be setting records for whenever he signs his next contract. Whatever this player does, his name is Shohei Otani, by the way, and he's, he's an excellent, otherworldly kind of baseball player. Everything that he does, he does well. He excels at every facet of the game, whether it's hitting for average, hitting for power, well, he's a designated hitter, so he doesn't play the field much, but when he pitches, he does play the field, and he, he, he throws almost 100 miles an hour. You know, he, he does all these incredible things, and he is one of the best hitters in the game and one of the best pitchers in the game at the same time. He excels at all facets of the game. He does all things within the game, and he does them well. Well, as we transition into this time in the book of Mark today, we, as we have studied this book, we have continually seen the crowds and their reaction to Jesus Christ. They're amazed at all the things that He is doing, and the culmination of our text today is that the people are going to be amazed at what Jesus is doing, and they're going to make this statement, He has done all things well. Everything that Jesus does, he does all things well. And, and as we've seen this, this theme kind of unfold throughout the book of Mark, there's a theme of astonishment, 
on the part of the people at what Christ has done and what He is doing. And I'm just going to kind of do an overview of some of the astonishment passages leading up to our text today as we see that Jesus does, He brings all this amazement with these statements. So we see in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 22, it says, they were astonished at His teaching. Right? This was at the very beginning of His ministry when He was just first getting established and first teaching things. They were, they were amazed at His teaching. Just a few verses later, he cast out a demon, and the response was, they were amazed. They couldn't believe what they were seeing in front of them. Later in chapter 2, it says, they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That was in response to Jesus healing a paralytic man and pronouncing forgiveness of his sins. We've never seen anything like this. This is brand new territory. The disciples, when Jesus calmed the water, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Chapter 5, Jesus casts out not just one demon, but a whole legion of demons out of this individual. And this individual, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Oh, it didn't advance. Everyone marveled. They were, they were amazed at what Jesus had done. Later on in chapter 5, when Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, the text says they were immediately overcome with amazements. In chapter 6, Jesus was teaching the people and they responded this way. Many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In this context, these questions are actually negative questions stemming from doubt, but they're still amazed at the things that Jesus was speaking and doing. And finally, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus walked on the water to the disciples in the boat, and the text says they were utterly astounded. Utterly astounded. Every time Jesus does something incredible, the people respond in, with amazement, right? They're astounded. He does something incredible, so of course they're going to respond in this way. Wow, we've never seen anything like this. This is truly amazing. His teachings, His love, His power, His healing, His exorcisms. You know, if, Jesus, if the Jews were expecting the, a five-tool Messiah, well, they got more than that, right? This man, he has, he's the complete package, and that is going to be demonstrated once again in our passage today. And again, it will culminate with those words, wow, Jesus, he does all things well. So with that, let us pick up our text this morning, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 and following. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on, them, on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He, sa- he sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened." And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged him to tell no one, 
But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is a passage that is a little bit of a unique passage in the midst of of our text. In some ways, these are things that we've seen over and over again as we move through this book, right? There's Jesus, there he, he encounters someone who needs a miracle, and he performs this miracle, and there's an amazing response of the people, right? They're astonished at him. But what makes this text unique and different is, is several things. There's the way in which Jesus performs this miracle. It's different from other miracles. And the particular response of the people, yes, they're astonished, but there's that statement, he has done all things well. It's a very significant statement in the midst of this text. The sermon today might be called a, a doxological sermon. Sometimes there are sermons where there's different practical applications given about how we should respond to the text. I think of, of even Jim's sermon last week about how he was, gave us the headings there about the faith that Jesus honors, right? We remember that. The, there was the uh, faith characterized by hunger and by humility and by hope. That's those are the faith that Jesus honors. And so the natural application is for us to consider, oh, do I have faith that is characterized by these things? Other times we come to a text and Perhaps the entire purpose of the text is to get us to gaze upon our great God and Savior and to marvel at who He is and what He has done. I think this is one of those texts. I do want us to see how this passage fits into the the overall story of Jesus and the Gospel of Mark. Because this, this does play in, with, especially in the next few weeks, as we're going to see Jesus, and He's going to be feeding another multitude, and He's going to be teaching His disciples, and He's going to say something very particular to the disciples when they're not getting it still. They still don't understand things. And Jesus is going to say, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? It's going to kind of call us to remember back to this passage about how Jesus healed a man who couldn't hear, and he gave him hearing, and then Jesus is going to confront the disciples about them. You you have ears. You're not like the deaf man. You have ears that work, and yet you still don't get it. So there is that broader context and how the, the themes do fit together and play together. But the theme within this particular text today is a doxological theme. That is to say, it is a theme of of glory and and, and amazement at who God is and what He has done. Because of this statement at the end, Jesus does all things well. That is the major punctuation mark at the end of this passage, the exclamation point at the conclusion here. He has done all things well. And that is the main thrust of what I want us to take away from today. If nothing else, if we don't remember anything else from today's time in the Word, Jesus does all things well. From this text in particular, there are three specific areas where He does things well. Of course, the things that Jesus does well is not limited to these particular items. But, and we've already done a survey of the responses of people from this book about the things that Jesus has done and the amazement of the, of the people in response to that. 
But this phrase, he does all things well, really serves as that capstone of the entirety of his ministry. But there are three specific things from this text that I will highlight today. And the first, Jesus does all things well in how he serves the nations. Jesus does all things well in how he serves the nations. From our text last week, we saw Jesus encounter that, the Syrophoenician woman who asked Jesus to cast out the demon from her daughter. That was a Gentile woman seeking help from the Jewish Messiah. That was not the first time that Jesus encounters a Gentile in, in the text of Mark. In fact, if you recall, the demoniac who had that legion of demons, that was the region of the Decapolis, well, that man was almost certainly a Gentile man himself. And so what we saw last week, we almost might have thrown us for a little bit of a loop when we saw that Jesus seems to initially refuse to help her on account of the fact that, hey, you're a Gentile and I have come to help the people of Israel. But in reality, as we saw last week, he draws out her faith and he provides her what she sought, that freedom and that healing for her daughter. But in that encounter, Jesus noted how he came to Israel as his primary mission and that there would be a day when Gentiles would be included within the new covenant blessings, but here he is primarily concerned with Israel at this particular moment. But nevertheless, in response to her hungry, humble, and hopeful faith, Jesus cast out that, the demon from that woman's daughter. Jesus provides the foretaste of the blessings that would eventually come to the Gentile nations. And in our text today, we find another such foretaste. In verse 31, we see the region in which Jesus is. He, he's, he returns from the region of Tyre. He went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, and he's in the region of the Decapolis. The region of the Decapolis, there were ten Greek cities that had formed an alliance of sorts that they banded together. They, they would kind of have each other's backs in the midst of things, and they would trade and do things with one another, where there was this, this region that stretched out within the land there, and so that was known as the region of the Decapolis, the region of the ten cities. And this is where Jesus is. This is Gentile country. Jesus is not amongst his own countrymen in this region of the land. Now, it's interesting, as I, was, as I was reading about this region and the area that he was in, this, the Decapolis, Tyre, and Sidon, how he traveled about in there, there's one commentary I read that because of the, the geographical terrain that was present there, that, that journey for him to travel through Tyre and Sidon and to be in that, to come back to the Sea of Galilee through the Decapolis, that was a journey that was very difficult to traverse on foot and likely would have taken Jesus several months to complete that circuit. Jesus, for several months, among the Gentiles. And if we recall back from verse 24 from last week, it says that he could not be hidden. He would go about, he was traveling around, and in verse 24 it says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Even if he tried to move about inconspicuously, he couldn't. People were aware of who he was. He was known everywhere he went, even in the Gentile lands. 
Why is he there? Why is he spending so much time out in the wilderness and out in these Gentile areas? There might be different reasons for it. It might be because he's avoiding some places within Israel because of the rejection and the opposition that he has been receiving. As we continue to move through this book of Mark, we're going to see those escalating tensions continue all the more. He's already been rejected by the religious leaders. We already see in our text that they're seeking opportunities to kill him. In his hometown of Capernaum, his, his own family member, his own countrymen there in his hometown, they've already said they've, they're already rejecting him. And so he goes out where there is less overt opposition. But to a, to a degree, ultimately, we are left to speculate on the question because the text simply does not tell us why he is in, these reason, in this region. But whatever the reason, we find him here in the region of the Decapolis, and Jesus was there in the countryside, and the people bring to him a man. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. The ESV says he has a, he's deaf and has a speech impediment. If we were to translate that literally, it says literally the man spoke with difficulty. So this man wasn't a completely mute man. He wasn't someone who couldn't speak at all, but he had, he had difficulty in speaking. He, he couldn't speak clearly. There are many interesting things about the way that Jesus is going to perform a miracle here. He's going to take the man aside, verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, after spitting, touched his tongue, looked up to heaven, sighed, and said to him, Ephathatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. So several interesting details. He takes the man aside. He puts his fingers in his ears. He spits. He, he touches his tongue. He looks up to heaven. He sighs. Like these are, this, is, this is an unusual sequence of events. You know, previously, when we've seen Jesus heal, what does he do? He maybe just touches him and he heals him. Or if someone may just, just touch the hem of his garment and the power goes out from him and the individuals are healed. Because the sequence of events is so different here from other miracles, many of and rightfully so, ask the question, why? Like, this, is, this is worth pondering for a moment. Why? What's, what, what's going on here? Why is Jesus healing in such a unique way? Some have, just, uh, some have suggested with this, with Jesus putting the fingers in his ear and touching his tongue, that Jesus was doing like a, like a, a form of sign language with this man. And I, I, I kind of rather doubt that that's the case. I, I don't see how that makes sense considering... Um, the spitting and all of those things, that doesn't make sense when, in the context of sign language. But here's, here's how I understand these details. He takes the man aside to try to minimize the spectacle. He is in Gentile lands. Consistently throughout this book, we have found Jesus not looking to make a big deal out of things. He's always telling him, hey, don't tell anyone. He's trying to do things quietly. And so that is consistent with a theme that we've seen repeatedly through the book of Mark. He touches the man's ears and his tongue in a, in a similar way that, that he provides healings to others. It's, and this is to demonstrate that the power is really coming from Jesus Christ to that particular area, that particular ailment. All right, this makes it clear it's not happenstance that this man, oh, his hearing just cleared up. 
Like, no, that was Jesus doing that, right? He has power in himself. He looks up to heaven and he sighs. And that word for sigh could actually be translated in different ways. It could be translated as sigh, it could be translated as groaning. In fact, it's the same word that we find in Romans chapter 8 when it talks about the spirit who groans or his spirit with, uh, speaks with utterances. He prays, he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words or with groanings that cannot be uttered. That's the same Greek word. So I believe that Jesus here, he's, he's muttering a prayer to the Father. He's looking up to heaven and he's praying to the Father. And that demonstrates that the power that Jesus has in himself is divine power. Remember, this is a Gentile context. This is a very different context from a lot of other Jesus' other miracles. And then we find the result of the miracle is that his ears were opened. He's no longer deaf. He could hear once again. And not only that, but ESV says that his tongue was released, the original word there. His tongue was unfettered. It's almost like picturing that there were, there were shackles on his tongue, that it was, it was like he was being held back and wasn't able to speak clearly because there were chains on his tongue. And so with Jesus healing him, those, his tongue was released. It was unfettered. It was loosed. And he could speak clearly. That's what the text says. He His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. He could speak clearly once again. We have another instance, and and sometimes I think when we are moving through a book like this and we're seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, we can almost get maybe desensitized from the miraculous activity that's going on here. We just like, oh yeah, there's Jesus just doing another miracle. This is what Jesus does. But no, this is an incredible thing. Right, someone who, who, did not, who could never hear is now hearing. Someone who spoke with difficulty now can speak plainly just like that. I mean, several individuals who, who have gone their entire lives without hearing, nowadays we have this amazing technology, right? That people can get these, these cochlear implants, right? And, and they can hear for the first time. They've never been able to hear before, and now they can hear again. And yet they still have these, these speech difficulties. They go to speech therapy and it, take, it can take years for them to speak somewhat clearly and somewhat plainly. And here in a moment, in an instant, Jesus clears all of that up. And he does it for a Gentile man. Once again, Jesus gives us a foretaste of the reality that that though his primary ministry is to the people of Israel, his primary ministry and his first coming was to the people of Israel, his message and his ministry would one day spread beyond the borders of Israel. And it would just go to the Gentiles as well through his followers. And I don't know if you've ever thought about how we, as we sit here today, are the fruit of that coming to fruition. We sit here today because people over 2,000 years ago were faithful to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it indiscriminately to Jew and Gentile alike. So this man's miracle was a foretaste of the salvation that would one day come to people like you and me. And one day the healing that will come to all the nations upon his return when Jesus establishes his kingdom and rules and reigns in truth and righteousness. 
But if you can, just picture for a moment the astonishment there as, as, as we have this man, he's a, he's a Gentile man healed by the Jewish Messiah. And this man, he says, he couldn't contain himself. Jesus charged him to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Just like the more that Jesus tries to say, hey, you know, please, just no more, just shh, stop. The, the louder and the louder they became, the, the more excited they became, the more, the more evangelistic, you could say, they became. As they, went, they wanted to let everyone know. They just simply could not contain themselves. And the response of the people, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Jesus does all things well in how He serves the nations. Connected to that, though, He does all things well in how He fulfills prophecy. If for someone reading this gospel, if they have familiarity with the, God, with the passages from Isaiah, there's a particular passage that would have come to mind. There's Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 6. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad... The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the deserts. Jesus has been opening eyes, unstopping ears, loosing tongues, strengthening legs, all messianic activities. Not just because these are miraculous, but because they fulfill the prophecies concerning of what was to come when the Messiah was on the scene. Jesus is doing it. Jesus is fulfilling these messianic prophecies. And so we read the words of Isaiah, you no longer need to be anxious. You, you can be resting in the God who is coming to deliver you. Your Savior has come. Now we might wonder here, okay, Jesus has been doing thing, these things throughout His whole ministry, right? Why, why should this particular text come to mind at this particular moment in the midst of Jesus' ministry. The reason for that is we consider verses 1 and 2 of this Isaiah 35 passage. The wilderness, the dry land shall be glad. Well, as Jesus is out in the Decapolis region, that is wilderness out there. Where it says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. The regions of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis is this very region that is spoken of by Isaiah the prophets. Lebanon shall see the glory of the Lord. And here Jesus is in the midst of the wilderness in the midst of the very reason, region prophesied by Isaiah the prophets. Gentile lands, 
gazing upon the glory of the Lord. Jesus fulfills these messianic prophecies, and that should be an encouragement for us on a number of levels. First and foremost, it means that God is faithful to keep His promises. God promised that this day would come. God promised that the Messiah would come, and here He is. He has said it. He will do it. He is trustworthy. Second, it gives us confident expectation that because the prophecies of Jesus' first coming were fulfilled, so too the promises of His second coming will be fulfilled. As we observe the Lord's table, we, we close with that phrase. We, we uh, eat this bread, we drink this cup until he comes again. That day is surely coming. Jesus Christ is coming back. And because we look backwards and we see the prophecies and how they were fulfilled with the first coming of Christ, so too we look forward to the day when Christ will return and his second coming will be fulfilled in the future. Third, this helps us understand how to read prophecy. There was a literal fulfillment to Isaiah's words. Right? Sometimes, as we've been talking about in our, in our Sunday school time, about principles of Bible study and interpretation, sometimes there is genuinely figurative language that is used, but it communicates a literal point. There's a literal meaning to the figurative language. So this helps us how we should read and understand prophecy and finally, and this does connect us back to our first point, well, the gospel does first go to Israel as, as the Messiah was, the Jewish Messiah coming to establish, establish His ministry upon the earth. There is always an intention to provide light and life to the Gentile world as well. There is always an intention to provide light and life to the Gentile world as well. Sometimes we as dispensationalists can get accused of believing that the church is God's plan B in the midst of His purposes in the world. So we look at, oh, there's, God had His plan with Israel and they just kind of messed it up and so God had to like, okay, and well, i got to come up with a new plan. I know the church. And they kind of set it up that way and they accuse people who have our theology of, of thinking in this way that God had to pivot to a plan B when Israel didn't work out so well. Well, I reject that characterization of our theology. I don't, I don't believe the church is a plan B. The, the concept of the church, Paul calls it a mystery, which means it was something that was previously hidden. It was not revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, but that doesn't mean it was a plan B within the unfolding plans of God. God always had a plan for the nations to partake in the blessings of the Messiah. And we see this unfolding and a foretaste of that within our text that is going to be expanded upon as we get further into the New Testament. But Jesus here in this moment, he does fulfill this messianic prophecy from Isaiah 35. Jesus does all things well, including how he fulfills prophecy. And finally, Jesus does all things well in how he works the works of God. Look at verse 37 once again. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
something that you need to know about the way this phrase is phrased in the Greek. He has done all things well. There's the, the Greek word that, that means to do something and the Greek word that means to make something. That's the same word. And just depending on the context, it determines how it is translated in our English translations. Is the, the word for to make and the word for to do. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and is the Bible that Jesus would have, is the Bible that the first century believers they had, that's what they would have been reading from the, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. The words in Genesis 1, where it says that God saw what He had made and it was good, those are the same Greek words for make and to do and for good and well. He has done all things well. God saw what He had made, and it was good. It's the grammar is slightly different, but the underlying words, the root words are the same. Furthermore, in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon writes that there's a time for this and that, if you remember that passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for everything under the sun, a time to plant, a time to root up what is planted, a time to sow, a time to tear apart, a time for this and that, a whole bunch of times, right? Well, the conclusion of that passage, the the lead up to all of that, there's the part where Solomon says, behold, he has made everything beautiful in its time. God is the sovereign one over all. He, God has appointed the times and the seasons and, and everything that God has made, everything that God does, he has, he has done all things well in that regard. He's made everything beautiful. Again, He has made is the same word. And He has made everything beautiful is the same word again as what we find here. He has done all things well. Same word groups. The Gentile audience who uttered the words here, he has done all things well, they may not have understood the, the connection, the thematic connection to the, to the Septuagint there, but Mark certainly would have understood that connection when he penned these words, and the readers to which he wrote certainly would have seen those connecting points as well. Jesus does the works of God. Jesus does all things well. Jesus makes all things beautiful. Jesus has done everything well. There's no getting around who Jesus Christ is. There's no getting around the things that He does. Everything that Jesus does, He does well. These are the works of none other than Almighty God. So the people are rightly amazed. And rightly, gazing upon the glory of what Christ has done, and are astonished. Beyond measure, this text says. I love the the superlative in the text. They were astonished beyond measure. Truly, this is an awe-inspiring passage. The glory of the Lord extending even to Gentiles in fulfillment of messianic prophecy, working the, the very works of Almighty God, Jesus does all things well. He has done all things well and He continues to do all things well. He hasn't stopped. Jesus has not stopped doing things well. He continues on with that to this very day. The question becomes, how do we respond? 
We see the response of the people. They're, they're amazed. They're astonished at it. But, it. but if that's where it stops, we're missing the boat. We're missing the point. In the coming weeks, we're going to see Jesus feeding yet another multitudes of people, another several thousands of people. And yet we also see the doubt of the Pharisees as they demand a sign. Didn't you just see this miracle I just performed? No, they're demanding a sign because they still doubt. We're going to see the power of Christ, and yet there's the lack of faith found in the disciples whom Jesus ironically calls blind and deaf right before he gives sight to a literal blind man. All of this is in pursuit of Jesus preparing his disciples to receive the truth and his purpose in coming. And he's going to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's where all of this is driving. All this is moving towards. Jesus does all things well. At base level, this should be a cause of praise within our hearts. We should praise him. For he does all things well. It should fill us with hope and trust in our great God and Savior. Whatever things that we find ourselves going through in life, whatever it is that we're experiencing, Jesus does all things well. He is working all things together for our good and his glory. He does all things well. We do well to remember these things and to rejoice and reflect and rest in the truth of this text, that Jesus does all things well. Lord, I do thank you so much for this text that you have given us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that, that Jesus Christ is the one who has done all things well and continues to do all things well. And all these things find their culmination not only in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but ultimately at His return, the, the great white throne judgments, the ushering in of the eternal state, and the ruling and reigning for all eternity in truth, righteousness, and justice. All things are done well. All things are done for your own honor and glory. All things are done for our good and your glory. May we remember and rejoice in these things today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.